Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Daily Dose on the Compliance Guy. I'm Sean Weiss, and as always, want to start by saying thank you all so much for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with me here for a little while as I get to talk about compliance. So I want to take a trip back down memory lane a little bit, and I want to get a little more technical about your compliance programs. And I know I've talked about these on live streams, and other podcasts with attorney guests, with Terry Fletcher, or Monday Coding and Compliance Roundtables, but I really, in these 10 to 15 minutes, whatever this uh, podcast turns out to be, I want to focus on some more of the technical components of it. And before you click the button to say, oh, I don't want to get into the technical stuff, Hang out with me just for a few minutes because I think you're going to find this interesting. So I want to go back to the 2010 Affordable Care Act because the act made substantive changes to the False Claims Act, including requiring an adoption of a compliance program as a condition of enrollment in Medicare as well as Medicaid, and I'll address that in a moment. In addition to that, Under the Affordable Care Act, they imposed a 60-day deadline for refunding overpayments and relaxing the public disclosure bar on ETAM cases. So those are the three aspects that I want to talk about over the next 15 minutes, okay? So let's talk about the first of these, which is an effective compliance program and the fact that it's mandatory. Because... Liability under the False Claims Act attaches only for the knowing submission of a false claim, right? Because the statute defines knowing and knowingly as acting in reckless disregard of the truth or falsity of a claim. And this actually comes directly from 31 U.S.C. subsection 3729B1. Now, there's only been one court to address the issue of providers' lack of an effective compliance program. And the fact is, this particular court agreed with the government's position that a healthcare provider's lack of an effective compliance program constitutes reckless disregard under the scienter requirements of the False Claims Act. So, Section 6401A of the Act requires, as a condition of enrollment in Medicare, 
that all providers and suppliers of medical goods and services to establish a compliance program that contains the core elements. We all know the seven core elements of a compliance program, but the one that doesn't get talked about a lot is, to me, number eight. And that's the risk. So, the timing of the implementation of the provision from the Affordable Care Act needs to be determined by a Secretary of Health and Human Services who's actually willing to stick their neck out there. And we've yet to have one do that. I mean, the law is on the book, right? We have the Affordable Care Act. What we don't have is real enforcement. I mean, we see it when the False Claims Act cases are filed, orders a key TAM filed, but we're not seeing it in the true sense of enforcement. Because neither the core elements nor the implementation date have been determined. So for me, until they are, providers and suppliers need to make sure that they have an effective compliance program in place. Because since 1997, the Office of the Inspector General has been issuing guidance for all different types of providers, providers, for dental practices, for billing companies, for laboratories, for hospitals, for physicians in solo or small group practices. And as I tell people all the time, an effective compliance program needs to be proactive. Or at the very least, it needs to provide compliance training and regular internal audits to be able to catch and correct billing errors. Again, having a corporate compliance program in place, in theory, should prevent billing errors from becoming a pattern that can be used by the government to establish that you knowingly were submitting false claims or acting in reckless disregard. I can't emphasize the importance of having an effective compliance program, the importance of creating a culture of compliance, the importance of understanding that you shouldn't be downloading something off of the internet and going into the replace all and finding the name of whatever that practice or hospital or health system is and and supplementing it with your name because blindly creating a compliance program off of somebody else's template you don't know what's applicable and what's not applicable to your organization or you may wind up committing to doing something in writing that you 
or your providers or your organization, your senior leadership never had any intent on doing. And during an investigation or God forbid, during depositions, getting ready for trial or at trial, it comes up that your compliance plan says you're going to do X, Y, and Z, but you did A, B, and C. What are you going to do? Are you going to openly admit that, well, you know, we downloaded the University of Utah's compliance program online and, you know, we just supplemented it with our name and we didn't really know what we were doing, but, you know, everybody says having a compliance plan demonstrates good faith. No, you didn't demonstrate good faith. You acted in reckless, you know, in reckless disregard with deliberate ignorance. Be smart about this stuff. So the other part of this, as I said, was the provision that was created imposing a 60-day deadline for refunding over payments. Now, as part of the act and part of the 2009 FARA, they expanded what's referred to as the reverse false claim. And this is a provision in which the government says if you, if you violate the reverse false claims by making or, or not making, but, you know, hanging on to funds that you know have been paid in error, it's a False Claims Act violation. So ACA imposed the time limit for repaying these funds. So Section 6402A requires any person who has received an overpayment to return and report the reason for the overpayment to the payer within 60 days after the overpayment was identified. In, in reality, you have up to eight months total, right? Six months generally is what the government says it should take an organization to conduct a bona fide investigation once you've identified a suspected overpayment to be able to then confirm that overpayment. And then you have 60 days after the confirmation date in which to issue your refund. So it's important to keep in mind that you have to identify, you have to define certain terms, right? And one of those terms is overpayment. And an overpayment is defined as any funds that a person receives or retains to which that person, after reconciliation, is not entitled to it. As I said, without defining some critical terms, right? So in that aforementioned sentence, there are terms like not entitled, identified, after reconciliation. You've got to define these terms. You have to know what they mean. And, you know, you can look at 
42 USC subsection 1320A through 7KD and get more of the definitions, more of how this False Claims Act is structured. But you can also look to the guidance issued by CMS in 2016. And what it says here is that these regulations provide that an overpayment has been identified when a provider or supplier has or should have, through the exercise of reasonable diligence, determined that an overpayment has been received and quantified the amount of the overpayment. And the aspect of quantifying the amount of the overpayment actually comes from 42 CFR subsection 401.305. All right. So the last thing that I want to talk about here is the relaxation of the public disclosure bar. Because prior to ACA, key TAM actions were barred if the information on which the suit was based had been publicly disclosed unless the relator was what they refer to as an original source, meaning they had firsthand knowledge of what was going on. So it's important to understand that in order to be considered an original source, a relayer was required to have direct and independent knowledge of the information. Now, under ACA, they relaxed this restriction to allow a person to qualify as an original source if that person has knowledge that is independent of and materially adds to the public disclosure allegations or transactions. And this was put into 31 USC, subsection 3730E4B. Now, in addition, prior to the enactment of ACA, the public disclosure bar itself was really jurisdictional, right? Because no court should have jurisdiction over an action or claim under this section based upon the public disclosure of allegations or transactions unless the allegation is brought by the attorney general or the person bringing the action is an original source of the information. And this is specifically listed in 31 USC, subsection 3730 e 4 a, and this is from the 2006 version. Now, what ACA did was basically amend that statement to where now it reads, the court shall dismiss an action or claim under this section unless opposed by the government if substantially the same allegations or transactions as alleged in the action or claim were publicly disclosed. And this now 
is in the 2010 version of 31 USC subsection 3730E4A. So now, basically, the government can prevent a court from dismissing a QTAM action based upon publicly disclosed information, regardless of whether the relator is the original source. All right. So, went just about 16 minutes here. I hope that this episode, this daily dose, reemphasizes once again the critical importance of having a corporate compliance program because in there meaning your compliance program you can establish policies and protocols and procedures for the 60-day rule as well as the false claims act and how to deal with key tam matters all right So that's going to conclude this episode. Again, thank you all so much for hanging out with me for just a little while. And until tomorrow, be good to yourself. But more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.